Hello and welcome to episode 229 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Virginia, uh, Vienna, Virginia, Ben Olson. Ben, what's happening on the East Coast? Oh, what's happening? Um, I'm doing intermittent fasting. Oh, how's that? How many hours a day are you allowed to feed? <laughs> so I think I'm, I, I've read online that there's like a whole range of things, but I think the most common one is only eight hours. Like you have an eight hour window. So mm-hmm. people would do like 10 to 6 or something like that, you know? Uh-huh. So anyways, yeah, it was weird. I, I'm i like pushing it later and later. So I was doing it from like 12 to 8 or something like that. And um, then, I, and then I, I just kept pushing it later. So then I eventually I was doing it like from like 4 to like midnight. Uh-huh. And um, I'd get really hungry, obviously – until like about four and then I'm like, Oh, I can eat. So then I'd eat. But then yesterday I didn't get hungry at all. So then like four came and I was like, I'm not even hungry. Like what's wrong. And I had worked out twice that day. So I don't know, man, it's interesting. Kind of like just biohacking or something. What benefits are you hoping to get from the intermittent fasting? Well, from what I understand, you don't like, you don't have a constant flood of insulin and there are like other benefits. I don't know. Who knows? Just to, just people seem like <laughs> it's all the good cool for you. kids are doing it, so you're doing <laughs> it. Cool. That's yeah, what you're well, it's not that like superficial. It's more like um, the studies I've read have convinced me that there might be benefits that we're not aware of. So, okay, here's what it is, dude. I have a philosophy, and that is that okay. if we can try to recreate how we as humans lived, like. 30,000 years ago. Um, when the life expectancy was like 25 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, no comments while I'm explaining my theory. Sorry. I was just, I was thought I was helping. <laughs> no, no, it's very helpful. Um, no, actually it's not. But in any case, I, I have this feeling that like, um, there are these like benefits, right? So for example, uh, cave, cave people like, 30,000 years ago or whatever. I don't know how long ago it was, but I imagine that they, they didn't have opportunities to eat for a certain amount of period of time. Then they would eat a decent amount. Right. And same with weather, like they're exposed to more extremes of weather. So I've just read like various books that are like, look, the reason we have to exercise today is because we don't do as much as we did before. And, but when you do that, you get all these like random benefits, not just the immediate benefit that you're thinking about. The same is true with weather exposure. Like if you're exposed to more extremes, like most people stay within five degrees of like some range, right? Five, 10 degrees. Uh-huh. You, I try when you to, go, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. That's just how it is, right? It gets too cold and you turn up the heater in your house or it gets too hot, you turn on your AC. But um, if you go outside of those ranges, things start happening that don't happen to people at all because they never leave that temperature range. And they and the studies that have been done by the NIH and other things say, hey, look, look at all these benefits that we didn't know would happen just by going outside of your temperature range, like reversing diabetes and stuff like that, which is crazy. And then, so anyways, this, this new set of studies is kind of like, hey, what about like not eating consistently every day? Because like that is a new thing. That's not something that happened a long time ago when you are deprived of food. Yeah, you're hungry, but these other things happen that are beneficial. So I'm buying into that argument and giving it a shot. That's all. Well, I hope your diabetes goes away. Yeah, I hope um, I don't have diabetes. But if I do, yeah, I hope it goes away. 
<laughs> Got it. Well, you have to give us an update next yeah. week uh, on your on your intermittent intermittent well, wait, fasting. Hold on, before we go um, on, is that so? What do you think of oh. that theory? Uh, sounds like um, it could possibly have some nah, merit. You don't seem too convinced. I'll have to. No, I'm zero percent convinced. I mean, it it sounds like just kind of the latest fad. I don't know. Oh man, have you read the book? Um, what doesn't kill us about the the guy who like does the temperature extreme stuff? All this this stuff has been no. studied. It's it's kind of fascinating actually. The NIH tried to like turn it into a drug. Like try to figure out what chemicals or hormones are released, and then try to like pharmaceuticalize them. But anyways, I see. I'll have to get more data for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, hey, I'm I'm open to uh, data. Yeah, I'm I'm a scientific type of a thinker. My default is everything's bullshit. But <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, um, no, I'm 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 always open to being convinced. Cool. Um, Today on the show, we have an interview with Professor Paulina Vera, who is, she's a law professor at George Washington University. She runs the Instagram account Hermanas in the Law. Um, There's also a LinkedIn group, Hermanas in the Law. And she is, I don't know, she's a influencer, I suppose, for uh people of color, especially Latinas, trying to get into law school. So we'll have that interview at the end of the show. We have also uh, an update, the LSAC, Ben. They finally announced the 2020-2021 LSAT dates. So we can talk about those. Not sure what there is to talk about. We have uh, an email from Suffolk Law talking all about their scholarship programs and just sharing a lot of information about the class. So just always interesting to, to like look at what these, you know, middling law schools are doing for self-promotion. Yeah. We also have an email from the listener, uh, a listener who uh, said that the podcast helped with reading comp. So there's some uh, reading comp tips that are going to come later in the show. Cool. Yeah, this episode will air on January, Monday, January 7th, uh, that, or January 27th, my bad. That means you have about two weeks to register for uh, the March LSAT. The registration deadline for the March LSAT is February 11th. Uh, next test coming up is February 22nd. That's a Saturday. Of course, uh, the deadline for that one has already passed. The March LSAT is on Monday, the 30th of March. Again, you have to register by February 11th if you want a seat in the March LSAT. You can email the show. Uh, Please do email the show, help at thinkinglsat.com. That's where we get most of our uh, content for the show is from the listener emails. So please um, send us news, send us questions. If you're worried about something particular on the LSAT that you think you want help with, send us a question. When you do that, you can send us a selfie if you like, and we'll uh, put your face on our social media. Leave us a review on iTunes, please. The five stars is nice, but the algorithm, if people are willing to like write actual words about the show that they watch, for whatever reason, the uh, iTunes algorithm is like, oh, people actually care about this show enough to write some things. So if you feel like uh, leaving a few words about your experience with the show in your iTunes review, um, that would really help other people find us. Ben, you still uh, hiring? Or did you already fill that 
that job for well, an outside teacher. The podcast that announced that first was just came out yesterday. Oh, went out yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So yes, as of today, still looking for an LSAT teacher who's in the DC area, who's not planning to go to law school for at least two years. Email me at jobs at strategyprep.com and let's talk. Go ahead and send a screenshot of your 99th percentile LSAT score when you do that, because I understand that's a requirement for the job. That is correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ideally, you'd be familiar with our approach and familiar with the LSAT demon if you're going to work with Ben. Yes. Jobs at strategyprep.com. All right. You ready to dive into this test dates email? I'll let you, uh, I'll let you drive. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, they finally announced the test dates for this year, which is strange because they're requiring people to sign up you know, a month and a half in advance or earlier. Forty. This email says generally 45 days prior to the test date. Okay. Interesting. So I don't know why it took them so long to figure things out. Maybe it was all the um, mishaps that they've had with the rollout of the digital set. Yeah. But in any case, um, the ones that we didn't know about were starting in June, and it's going to be on June 8th. Um, then we had a July 13th. Uh, August 29th, October 3rd, November 14th, and then that's it for this year. That seems like the October LSAT's really early. And this, and then we have an August test, which we haven't had before. Yeah, the ver- very beginning of, of October. Yeah. Um, if you're a morning person, the uh, tests in August, October, and November are all 8.30 a.m. tests. That also goes for the January, February, and April of 2021 tests. Those are all going to be 8.30 in the morning. The June and July tests, for whatever reason, start at 12.30 p.m. I know that's a factor for some people. It's probably not the thing that they should really be thinking about. If you were going to apply on September 1st, if you're going to apply perfectly, it's looking like that July test is kind of like your last one, huh? Yeah. If you're going to apply slightly less than perfectly, the August 29th test is not bad. Scores will come back still in September. You can still get your application in in September. When you say perfectly, though, should people be worrying about the differences between applying in September versus October? I like to keep my standards high, man. I like to stri- I like to sh- have people shooting for September first because people just don't make it. Yeah. And if you if you allow for like, oh well, any time in September is okay, then they start thinking, oh well, so then any time in October is okay. Yeah. And then they start thinking any time in November is okay, and it's just not true. I mean, my students this year who applied like on September first, I started hearing people with offers in September. I guess my worry is I just don't want people to say, okay, I have to apply by September 1st, and if I don't, then... Well, I mean... You know, and they really should be taking the October LSAT because they're going to get three more points. I want them to take... Right. So I, I always think about this, and I've talked about this on the show before. Recently, I've talked about this on the show. If I were your dad, like if I was in charge of the finances... If I, if I was actually like calling the shots and going to pay for it, like potentially pay tuition, which I just probably wouldn't. But if I was in charge of like, I'm making your decisions because I'm paying your rent. Sure. I, I think that my kid would apply on September 1st 
just period, you're applying on September 1st. And if that means you're applying next cycle on September 1st, that's fine. It's just like, that's how we're doing it. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So one way to think about this is you have three tests that you can take in any given cycle and then five, practically speaking, you can take if you have two cycles and a cycle goes from June 1st to May 31st. Yep. So one thing you could think about doing is planning, <laughs> pre- preparing for the test. If you start at the end of the year, for example, um, shoot for, say, the February, March, April, June, or July test. Those are your five tests that you could take. And if you shoot to get ready for the February LSAT, and then you have four more opportunities after that, which you could use all of because you would be going from one cycle to the next, right? The first three would be in the first cycle, February, March, and April. And then the June and July tests would be in the next cycle. But those are your five shots at the Apple, assuming you were ready for February. Then you're walking into the beginning of the application cycle with the best score you could possibly get. Because if you were ready to take it in February, you had had five shots at the Apple, there's no way. (laughs) Yep. And then let's push that back six weeks for somebody who, you know, maybe they're hearing this now and they're just at the very beginning of their prep, right? It's not too late to sign up for the March LSAT. I think if you started prepping today, I mean, you'd have shit, nine weeks of prep. Uh, Many people would be able to get ready in nine weeks for the March 30th LSAT. Not everybody. (laughs) A lot of people are going to take nine months. But some people are going to get ready in nine weeks. Yeah. And if that's you, and you know, if you know that you have a history, you're pretty good with standardized tests generally, or let's say you, you took a practice test already and you scored like a cold 155 or 160 or something like that or, or above. Yeah. If that's you, then yeah, there's no reason not to sign up for the March test. In that case, you can take March, April. Those are still in the previous cycle. Yeah. Then you can take... Um, June, July, and August as your final final backup. So two in this cycle and three in next yep. cycle. And that would still allow you to apply in September. Yeah. So, you know, maybe if I'm in charge, maybe if I'm your dad, I, I let you get away with that because it's still in September. Yeah. But if by the time by the time people are taking the October LSAT, I just I I really I really honestly believe that it would be better to apply at the beginning of the next cycle instead of applying in the middle of the you know it's just always better to apply earlier. Yeah. <laughs> like it once you have the best LSAT score. So if you're not going to get your best LSAT score until October of this year, you should probably just wait and apply in September of next year. Anyhow, that's the schedule. Anything else here that you want to talk about? Um, How many tests do they have in a year? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, plus January. Yeah, so they had nine. Yeah, it's nine. So I guess that's the plan going forward, nine tests a year. Yeah, it looks like they're sticking with their nine a year. Um, Spaced roughly evenly throughout the year. Looks like this year they're skipping May... September and December. Next year they're skipping March. Huh. But yeah, it's going to be it's looking like they're they're going with the 9 times a year. Yeah. Uh 
If you have questions about the new dates, the email says you can contact LSAC candidate services directly. LSAC info at LSAC.org or 215-968-1001. There are, (laughs) they're still pimping their free resources, the digital familiarization videos and practice tests and stuff at familiar.lsac.org and their official LSAT prep with Khan Academy at khanacademy.org slash LSAT. Boy, that Khan Academy thing, it made a big splash like two years ago, and then we haven't heard anything more about it. Nope. It just basically isn't that good. That's why. Yeah. They like to still keep talking about it. Like, oh, we're expanding access to the legal field because we have this free LSAT prep with Khan Academy. (laughs) Official LSAT prep. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I know, but it's got bad ideas about how the test works. Mm, Forums. It doesn't say anything. It's just, we're going to have forums. Okay. That's it for that email, I think. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, we have this email. I just thought it was kind of funny. This is another thing that Matt Dumont came up with. Matt is my uh, TA here in Los Angeles, and he does operations for the LSAT Demon. And we're going to be very sad to see Matt go um, when he goes to law school this fall. But he got an email from Suffolk Law School, which I don't actually know where that is. That's It's in Massachusetts. It's like Springfield, Mass. or something like that, probably. Cool. Oh, no, it's in Boston. Oh, wow. Okay. It's on Tremont in Boston. It says, I'm going to just read this. Subject, full scholarships available. Apply now. This is an email that Suffolk is sending out in January. Full scholarships available. Apply now. Okay, here we go. Full tuition scholarships are available to full-time admitted students who have LSAT scores above 154 and undergraduate GPAs above 3.4. Students with lower scores are also eligible for significant merit scholarships. Apply today to find out what you can receive. Get a fee waiver instantly online. So there's a link here that you can just click to get a fee waiver and apply to Suffolk for free. We looked, Matt and I took a quick look at the uh, 509 for Suffolk. Yeah. And 154 and 3.4 is like kind of in the middle of their class. Hmm. But now that I reread, and so then we were wondering like, wait, what, a, hold on. Like, what are they, you know, what's, what's the real story here? Sure. Conditional um, maybe? Um, I'm going to actually look at their 509 real quick right now. Uh, this is the 2018 report. That's the first thing that came up, but yeah, I mean, 50th percentile LSAT 153, 50th percentile GPA 3.3. So this is just like, if you're slightly above our 50th percentile, we might offer you a full ride, but this is kind of like a, 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 a lawyer thing. Oh, they're available. Yeah. What does exactly. that mean? <laughs> they're being exactly. offered. It doesn't say guaranteed. It says full tuition scholarships are available. It doesn't say available to all full-time admitted students who have LSAT scores above 154. It just says they are available to students who have LSAT scores above 154 and undergraduate GPAs above 3.4. So I think what they're (laughs) saying, Ben, is that those are necessary conditions. Not sufficient. Not sufficient. No, I don't think they're saying we're going to give a full ride to everybody who's above our medians. (laughs) That would be kind of wild if they were. Um, Anyway, 
We're accepting applications now to enroll for May or August 2020. Damn, you could apply now, get a full ride, and start in May. Start in May? Yeah. Okay. Want more info? And they've got an info session coming up. Um, you got a lot of pictures in this email. A lot of pictures. Yep, we got a picture of uh, the Paul Revere statue in Boston Common with uh, a bunch of tulips. We got cannabis. We have we, yeah, farther down we have some we have some cannabis. Uh, we'll get there. Um, meet our 2019 first year class. Our 368 first year JD students come from 146 colleges and 15 countries. 21 percent come from diverse ethnic backgrounds. <laughs> In other words, 79 percent white. 20 have PhDs. One quarter of first-year students are in our evening JD program. Our new students have a median LSAT of 152 and GPA of 3.3. Wow. Okay. Hey, they link to their 509 report. What? Yeah. Learn more from our 2019 ABA 509. Okay. Man, got to give them some credit for that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, good job, Suffolk. Nice. Then they talk about their specialty programs, of course. Suffolk Law has six specialty programs ranked in the top 30 by U.S. News & World Report, including all four legal skills. (laughs) Legal writing program, Ben. Hey, legal writing program, third. That's good. That's important to me. If that's real, that's like the most important thing there is, right? Really, that is, yeah. Trial ad is 15th. Clinical programs are 19th. Dispute resolution program is 16th. In addition to being listed in the 2020 U.S. News Top Schools section, whatever the hell that means. Does that just mean that they're ranked? I'm surprised they didn't say top 20. Oh, six specialty programs ranked in the top 30. So I was just laughing because when it says including all four legal skills, I was like, oh, these are these are the four legal skills. <laughs> This is all that's required. (laughs) We have uh, alumni at forefront of cannabis industry. This is a news item in the newsletter with a picture of a woman. Laurie Lucien, JD15, is chief legal strategist at Greenlight Business Solutions, (laughs) one of six organizations chosen by Massachusetts to help train cannabis entrepreneurs and professionals. They typoed entrepreneurs there in a way that spell check catches. Wow. Um, Read about her and two other alumni's huh? Oops. pathways to the forefront of the state's budding cannabis industry. Get it, Ben? Budding <laughs> cannabis industry. In the winter 2020 Suffolk Law Alumni Magazine. Wow. Okay. So you could get into the weed business if you go to Suffolk. That's good. Mm-hmm. 23,000 alumni across the globe. Suffolk Law has one of the largest alumni networks of any school. That's 23 law alumni across the globe. In other words, they're just saying they're big. 23,000. One of every four judges in Massachusetts graduated from Suffolk. Hmm. That's pretty good. More patent law partners and associates in the state's largest firms graduated from Suffolk than any other law school. Learn more about our alumni with videos and profiles. Yeah, I mean, hey, if you're if you want to stay in in Boston, if you want to stay in Massachusetts, 
Suffolk looks like a fine regional school. And full ride scholarships are available. Hmm. Cool. I don't hate it. What's law school like? Current students have written about their experiences while at Suffolk Law from studying in Ireland and representing a teenager in Boston Municipal Court to interning in Brazil and taking 1L legal writing. Hmm. They really should stop talking about the international study bullshit, Ben. <laughs> it's like, have you always wanted to go to Ireland? Come to law school. <laughs> you might be the one of hundreds who goes. Yeah, and by the way, it's just all those things, most of those programs, it's just like undergrad study abroad. It's like, if you can afford it, great, it's a nice vacation. But, I mean, you shouldn't be going to law school in order to go see Ireland or Brazil. For the amount of money you're going to pay to go to law school, you could just move to Ireland or Brazil. Yeah. Or take an awful nice vacation there for a long-ass time. Plan to visit Suffolk Law. If you'd like more information about our JD, Accelerated JD, that's a two-year day or three-year evening. See, that's nice. Why don't more schools have Accelerated JD? Just be in law school for two years instead of three. Yeah, how do they do that? You have to wonder. I think they charge you more and they just make you take more classes. But the thing is, if, if you're curved against the other people, I hope you're not taking classes mixed in with normal people. Yeah, that would be <laughs> tough. Because then you'd be at a major disadvantage. Hmm. But if they're all put in one cohort where it's all everybody in the two-year program is just together in all their classes. Yeah. Then, you know, the curve wouldn't screw you because everybody would have six classes instead of five or five classes instead of four. I, I can't imagine that they're taking the same number of classes, though. I bet the overall number of classes... They're actually taking fewer classes. I, I bet well, they might they might take a semester over the summer. Hmm. That's how... I did an accelerated MBA in Boston. Yeah. And the way they did that was we had to take summer classes. Hmm. And it was, like, slightly faster paced. But... Hmm. Anyway, that's Suffolk Law. Cool. They're at 120 Tremont in Boston. You want to read this uh, email about uh, reading comp? Yeah, so it's titled, Podcast Helped Me With RC, Hashtag Pearl. Hmm. I listened to an older episode yesterday, number 188, and at one point the two of you, Nathan and Ben, were talking about a Reddit post in regards to speed reading on RC passages, reading comp passages. To which Nathan called bullshit on, rightfully so. A comment was made in passing about staying engaged with the passage by following along with your finger, essentially directing your eyes. I'm 35 years old and this is something I've never done. I almost never practice reading comp passages because it has naturally been my strongest area. But after a devastating practice test the night before and scoring my worst ever in RC, minus 14, I knew something had to change. I took another practice test, apparently prep test number 75, the next day. I unintentionally started reading with my finger, and I could tell after the first passage that it had helped and was keeping me engaged and focused. I ended up going minus five, but I feel I could have hit minus two or three if I didn't have to rush the last passage and questions. Okay. 
In short, there are pearls in the, those older podcasts, and I feel that because this helped me, it can help others too. I would have posted on Twitter, but obviously more than 150 characters. Do you? Did you say follow along with your finger? Yeah, I used to say that. I used to oh. tell people that it's one way to stay like engaged, I guess, focused. Okay. Hey, if it works for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I actually don't do it, but I got it from a, <laughs> a speed reading class, which is probably why I mentioned it. But I see. the point is not to read faster. The point is to be like, you know how people, I don't know why they do it, but they they drift off or something like that, right? Yeah, just fall asleep. It's like they're they're not really reading. Their eyes are kind of going over the words, but they're not, nothing's going in. Yeah. And, you know, for some people it makes it worse. But I do know that for some people, they, I don't know, they pay attention more or something. Maybe it's a, something physical that they can do while they're reading. But anyways, it worked for this guy, so that's great. Also, I picked up the LR Encyclopedia. That's Nathan's book on Amazon, by the way, because I was struggling with LR, logical reasoning, still my worst. And it has helped tremendously. I wish I would I should make a note there. I mean, all those explanations are now in the demon so you can definitely keep buying the books if you want, but all my written explanations now are just inside the LSAT demon. And I think it's a lot more efficient to do that work in the demon. Oh, if you yeah. do it in the demon, you can do it online. You can do it wherever you are. Not only that, but the demon will learn from your mistakes and it'll be presenting you with challenges that are at your level. The LR encyclopedia had 550 of those explanations um, that people find helpful the demon eventually is going to have 4,500 or 5,000 or and counting yeah. of those written explanations. Plus video so, explanations with class yeah, discussions. Yeah, plus videos for <laughs> multiple videos for all the games. I had fun this weekend, Ben, um, not to change the subject in the middle of an email, but I, um, I had fun this weekend. Last weekend in LA, I did prep test 89. Yeah. And then this weekend in San Francisco, we did prep test 89 again. And I tried to do the games when I did the videos again, like the second time through. Yeah. I tried to do each game in a completely different way mm. uh, or just basically use like make worlds, but pick a different first split. Sure. It's really it's like just so fun. And it's really interesting to see how you can always get to the same place just through some other random way. Yeah. It's wild because it's almost like I'll be like, OK, let me pick just kind of a ridiculous like, how about if I made six worlds based on all the different combinations for this one player or something? Yeah. And it turns out to just be like a home run. Like, I start with that, and then like three of those worlds die, and then I end up with only three left. Yeah. And then it's just like, oh, yeah, sure, totally unlock the whole game. So anyway, yeah, the written explanations in the demon, video explanations in the demon. Um Glad you like the book, but uh, you should probably just be moving all that stuff over to the LSAT Demon these days. That's LSATdemon.com. Yeah, do a free trial if you think we're bullshitting. Do a free trial, a uh, seven-day free trial, and uh, let us know what you think. Yeah. All right. What's, what's next here? Sorry, I interrupted you in the middle of the email. No, no, it's all right. Let me th see where we're at. Okay, so I wish I would have gotten it with more than three weeks before the LSAT. He's referring to your book. I already worked through the LSAT trainer. Cassidy's book, hmm, I don't know who that is, and the Manhattan Prep Series. LR Encyclopedia is hands down the most useful and not filled with stupid bullshit. Although it probably is filled with a lot of bullshits. 
<laughs> it's got the word bullshit a lot. <laughs> um, and it's also got lots of, I'm sure it has lots of just quirky, stupid little anecdotes and examples and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, my goal is to keep you awake while tricking you into learning stuff about the LSAT. So I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you found it helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Postscript written out by the way. I haven't started my personal statement yet, but you guys have already helped me know what not to write about. And most importantly, that I probably shouldn't ever ask you to proofread it out of being fear of humiliated. LOL. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, uh, I'm I'm fixing the word proofread itself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's one word, not two. But uh, in any case, um, yeah, well, you know, it's hard not to be critical of writing. I don't know. Glad the book was helpful. Uh, M, glad glad you find the podcast helpful. Glad the book was helpful. Thanks for listening. Um, Thanks for writing in. Really appreciate it. All right, I think that's it for our agenda items. Should we go uh, go get Paulina Vera for the interview? Let's do it. Ben, do you remember how Paulina came across our radar? It was it was one of our listeners, maybe. Was it Gabriella from the Facebook group who yeah. started talking about Professor Vera? Yeah, she was very excited about what you do and just thought that having you on the show would allow our listeners to get a perspective on the kind of work that they can do and... I guess work that she felt like wasn't highlighted or talked about enough. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a a bio here for you and um, yeah, thanks for coming to the show. Um, Paulina Vera supervises George Washington law immigration clinic students and provides legal representation to asylum seekers and respondents facing deportation in immigration court. She is a professorial lecturer in law and for the 2019, 2020 academic year, will lead the clinic and teach Immigration Law 1. Um, Paulina Vera, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. How are you today? Oh, just fine, thanks. Um, yeah, listeners have been talking about you on our Facebook group, and uh, very happy to have you join us. Let me read a few more of these bullet points from your bio. You served as the only immigration staff attorney at the Maryland-based nonprofit CASA. I'm curious about that. I'm a CASA volunteer. So there's two different CASAs. There's one that's a court-appointed special advocate, and then there's a Maryland-based immigrant rights nonprofit. Oh, you're a different one. Sorry. sorry. So they're different CASAs. I get that all the time, though. So no. Oh, okay. So, so the one that you worked with is just in Maryland? So it's Maryland-based. However, they do have offices in Virginia and Pennsylvania as well. Oh, okay. Cool. I'm, so I'm curious, then, what does that organization do? So they're an immigrant rights organization, and actually the legal department is fairly small. It's comprised of about 10 individuals who, in addition to doing uh, immigration law matters, also works on housing and employment. Um, But broadly, they do a lot of things just supporting the immigrant communities, including education, job trainings, um, political advocacy as well. So there's a lot going on at Gaza, um, which, as you can imagine, being the only the only immigration staff attorney at such a large organization, um, I was quite busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, imagine. Okay, so you graduated from George Washington Law in 2015. Uh, during law school, you were a student attorney at the immigration clinic. You currently 
Wow, a lot of things here. Uh, Co-chair of the Student Affairs Committee for the Hispanic Bar Association of D.C., board member of the Hispanic Bar Association of D.C. Foundation, board member of LEAD Latino America. Uh, What is that? So LEAD Latino America is a up-and-coming 501c3 that aims to send um, Latino students uh, high school students to Latin America to do community service based projects there, and then to bring that skill set back to the United States um, and creating some sort of service based project here on the US side. Um, so, we haven't uh, launched our initial trips to Latin America yet. That's something that we're working on um, hopefully in the next few years. But um, I was approached by um, a gentleman who, who's running it out of San Francisco. Um, and he's being very intentional about who he's bringing on the board. Um, so there's a couple of lawyers, myself and one of my friends, Raquel, but also people from you know media backgrounds, education backgrounds, um, medical backgrounds. So all sorts of inputs um, as we create those programs. Gotcha. Okay. I think the way you came across our radar in the first place was because of Hermanas and the Law. Um, that's your, you started that online community. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So I started Hermanas in the law in February of 2018. And so right now it's an online community, although I am working to hopefully (laughs) create it into a nonprofit as well. Um, so stay tuned for that. But right now we have a, a presence on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, and then we're working on getting the website up and coming for this year. Fantastic. Okay. And so Gabriella has this whole list of questions here that I guess we'll maybe just run through. Uh, thanks, Gabriella, by the way, for suggesting Professor Vera for the show. Gabriella wants to know what inspired you to create Hermanas in the Law. So the um, Latinas comprise less than 2% of all U.S. attorneys, which is a very dismal number. Um, and I think I very much feel that um, and have felt that throughout my legal career, both you know, in law school, and then certainly um, as the only immigration attorney at CASA, and then now coming back to GW and supervising students in the clinic where I was once a student. Um, So working in the academic space as well, that's definitely something I feel all the time. And so I always credit this one incident where I was on a panel, and I have what I call the trifecta. I'm younger, I'm a woman, and I'm Latina. And my two co-panelists were much, much older, um, white males, you know, who had very long careers, one a retired judge, one a professor. And so I was on that panel. To me, I already sort of felt, you know, that contrast that... um, It's kind of like being on this show. What? It's kind of like being on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of that imposter syndrome that always creeps up. And the other thing is that... My students, who are majority women, um, a significant number of women of color, and then you know some Latinas um, scattered in there as well, they were also watching that panel. And so I very much felt, you know, like not only am I feeling the things that I'm feeling being on this panel, like I also have my students, you know, looking to me as represent- representation, sort of watching me. And I don't know, just upon reflection, I realized that our stories aren't highlighted enough, told enough. And I thought about how that that could be one way in which we could hopefully up the numbers um, to push beyond the 2%. 
So that's where Hermanas of the Law came from. When did you start that again? And how big has that grown? So February of 2018. So we're coming up on our two-year anniversary. Uh-huh. And currently we have about 9,200 followers on Instagram. So wow. it's, it's gotten pretty big. Um, I'm not sure the exact numbers for the Facebook group or for LinkedIn, which are a little bit newer. But yeah, the community's grown not only... Um, you know, and followers, it's just in scope as well. Like I have people from Florida all the way to the Bay Area, like Indiana, Kansas, just really all over the country, reaching out, offering advice, asking questions, trying to be part of this community. So I feel very proud of that. You said you have a website for that launching this year? Yes, TBD, but that is the project for this year. Okay, gotcha. What are you going to do with the website? So right now... um, there are a couple key features of Hermanas in the Law. One is to feature Latinas who are thinking about going to law school, Latinas who are lost, current, currently law students, and Latina lawyers, or Latinas as I like to call them. And when we feature them, uh, you know, we provide sort of their background, their professional background, the Latina law students and Latina lawyers, they're asked to provide advice for people um, who are thinking about going to law school and Latinas who are currently in law school. And then the um, Latinas who are thinking about going to law school are asked to explain what is their motivation for applying to law school. So one part of the website would be to sort of mirror that as well and um, have those features just in one centralized place for people to be able to access. And then the other part of the platform right now is resources. So I share everything from scholarships to CLEs to fellowships, internships, job postings, etc. And again, I think... Um, while Instagram is a great platform because I'm able to share with a lot of people, it would be nice to have those resources reflected as well on a website. So it might be a little bit easier and more organized for people to access. Gotcha. What advice would you give to prospective um, underrepresented minority students who are, you know, maybe they're in LSAT prep now and applications or about to go to law school? Do you have, do you have specific advice for them? Sure. So a couple of things I would say. One is conduct informational interviews with either current law students or practicing attorneys. And I know that can be really intimidating if you don't know any. Um, And so that's why I think platforms like Hermanas in the Law, I'm trying to also connect individuals. So for example, if someone messages me, and actually I just had this happen the other day, um, uh, undergrad Latina um, in Chicago said she wanted to be connected to a Latina law student in the Chicago area. And so I was able to find someone that was could speak with her, connected the two of them. But I think just really sitting down and asking questions about what it's like, um, because I think I went into it pretty blindly and kind of figured out a lot of things on my own along the way. I think that that will give you just a little bit of a leg up and maybe won't be such a shock to the system once you you start along that path. Um, Secondly, I would say apply early and advocate for yourself. So I definitely applied a little bit later in the cycle. I applied end of December, early January, I want to say. And GW gave me money. (laughs) However... I do think that had I applied earlier, there would have been a bigger pool of scholarship money to draw upon. And also, I think I could have done a better job of negotiating my scholarship package. Um, I did come back to GW once with another scholarship offer from another DC-based school and got a little bit more money. But I think at that point, 
And I think that we see this with a lot of people of color, first gen immigrant, uh, children of immigrants, right? I was just feeling so fortunate to get into law school um, and to a pretty high ranked law school and a law school I really wanted to go to that I kind of just accepted what was thrown at me and didn't really question it. And so I think if I had to go back and do it again, I would definitely advocate a little bit more for myself, especially given the the dismal numbers that I just quoted about Latinas and the legal profession, right? I feel very strongly that I offered a unique voice in law school and continue to offer a unique voice in the legal profession. And so I think that that warranted maybe <laughs> a little easing of my student loans. <laughs> so when you say advocate for yourself, then what, what would that look like? So again, I think not just accepting that, yes, I got this scholarship package and that's it. Um, you know, that's the end of the inquiry saying, coming back with other scholarship offers, sort of negotiating, um, making a case for yourself. Actually, the best piece of advice that I got from my current boss and mentor, Professor Benitez was, if you can't advocate for yourself, how can you advocate for others? And so I think really just making a case for why you're an asset to the law school and why they should incentivize you to come to their law school, um, specifically. So did you not negotiate at all? So like I said, I just came back with one scholarship offer from another DC-based school and GW like moved the needle a little bit, but really not that much in the uh, to be significant in the long run. And then like I said, I sort of at that point was just like, okay, well, this is where I want to go to law school, so I'm going to make it happen. You didn't push back multiple times on the offer. Uh, you just mentioned that um, you should advocate for yourself by telling the school, hey, look, this is what I can bring to the table. What are some of the things that you wish you would have said, hey, look, this is what I can bring to the table, or what would you encourage other people to think about as they're thinking of those things? So you're saying what concrete things should people look Yeah. I mean, again, I'm speaking from the Latina perspective, right? But I think it's the, just the representation, um, maybe like finding concrete numbers of, uh, Latino or Latino faculty at the school of, um, the students that go there. For example, I know that many law schools have LALSA chapters, so LALSA or HILSA chapters, but essentially Hispanic, um, law students or Latino law student chapters, and I know they're always willing to speak with prospective students. So maybe even talking to those folks. And a lot of times you'll be very surprised by how few there are, right? Similarly, the faculty, you know, my particular school, while I think has done a really good job in supporting me in my career and the things I want to do as a Latina lawyer, um, we are majorly underrepresented on the faculty as well. And so I think sort of bringing those concrete numbers to the law school is one way because, you know, uh, law schools oftentimes are very number oriented, facts based. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Becky from our Facebook group, um, said looking at your GW bio, it looks like you've accomplished a lot in a short amount of time and even did some impressive stuff while you were still in law school. Becky wants to know how you found and created opportunities for yourself, especially while still a student. So, I mean, I, I always say that it's about community, right? I don't think that I necessarily did all these things on my own. Um, I was very fortunate in that I studied law and practiced law in D.C., and so I took advantage of a lot of the resources that are available to me in a, a bigger city. 
Um, for example, I've been very involved with the Hispanic Bar Association of DC, even since I was a 1L. Um, and so I took it upon myself, right, to go to the many, many networking events that they put on a year to volunteer for committees, because you can do that even as a law student, um, to talk to attorneys that way. And I think that that was one thing that community in particular has given me a lot in my career. And, and thankfully, now um, I'm actually a board member. I got elected last week. Um, I'm able to give back in, in sort of that capacity. So that was one community. I think the other was my my law school community, especially the public interest community. Um, I will say my law school's more big law focused, I would say, but within that there are like passionate individuals that want to pub that want to practice public interest law. And then within that people that wanted to practice immigration law. So the immigration law association is very active on my campus. Um, I got involved with them when I was even a one L they launched, um, an inaugural trip to the border, actually to my hometown of Tucson, Arizona. And so I, you know, took it upon myself to plan that trip the second year. And then I became president of the organization the third year. And so I, I relied on that community as well of individuals, many of whom went on to be immigration practitioners, are now my colleagues in the field. And I'm able to, you know, call them, pick their brains um, about certain issues that are going on. And then mentors definitely help as well. Um, I've been very fortunate. I mentioned earlier, my current boss was actually my professor when I was a clinical student um, in my third year of law school. And Professor Benitez has been really great as well. Um, when I was figuring out my first job situation, I called him, you know, to talk about just whether or not certain jobs were a good fit for me and things like that. And he's always just kind of checked in on me along the way, even when I was the only immigration staff attorney at Casa. You know, things were really crazy. I had a crazy workload. Um, he would help me out with that as well. So I think community is really what I credit all of it to. Um, and But not being passive, right? Like I said, like I did go out of my way to either like create events or spaces or like take advantage of, not take advantage, but, you know, actually go to the things that were already created, the spaces that were already created. You mentioned public interest. Do you have advice for uh, our listeners who are hoping to work in public service, public interest? Yes. So obviously the money is the biggest thing I get asked about. <laughs> and that's the reality, right? We're definitely not in the public interest field paid what we are worth. Um, and so that's something that people should be aware of and should think about when they're thinking about long-term financial planning as well. What is that going to look like? And I'm very open about salaries because um, that's a whole other conversation I feel, but um, a lot of times, right. Uh, salaries aren't as, uh, as transparent as they should be certainly not for women of color as well. And so that's actually something I've had a conversation about on and in the law. And so when I first started out as a public interest attorney at Casa, I was being paid 50,000 a year. Um, which actually was one was a higher end salary in the DC area. Many places offered me much, much less. And DC is one of the most expensive cities in the country. So, you know, I had to think about my survival. And so I actually turned down several opportunities because I just knew that I couldn't live, even if I had roommates, even if, you know, I budgeted and did all these things because it just wasn't enough money. And so I think you know, that's one reality that you have to contend with. Um, for me, 
getting paid, I do get paid more GW, but even getting paid less than some of my other attorney colleagues who are the same, who are in their fifth year of practice is a trade-off, right? Because I also feel like I have a lot of job satisfaction. Um, I'm lucky in that for the most part, my schedule is pretty normal, nine to five, predictable. Um, I get to do a lot of cool things. I get to go to conferences, get a lot of job development. I get to work with students. I get to teach. So I'm doing a lot. I have my hands on a lot of things that make me happy as a professional that maybe some of my colleagues don't necessarily have. Um, and so for me, it's sort of a trade-off, right? Like I get to live my life and I don't know if work balance is ever attainable to be honest, but like as far as work balance goes, I think I have it pretty good. Um, but that's also not to be said of all public interest spaces as well. Um, I know from speaking from my, uh, speaking with my alums, speaking with other practitioners, you know, sometimes even in the nonprofit space, the work-life balance isn't as respected as, as it should be. And so I think the other thing is not to feel guilty about needing, you know, time away from the work that you're doing. I'm very passionate about immigration. I think about my clients all the time, but it doesn't do anyone any good if I'm just working 24-7 and burn out um, versus like taking a step back sometimes and... Um, I've also been very open about my mental health experiences as well. I suffer from anxiety and depression, which I treat um, both with prescriptions and uh, with therapy as well. And so for me, I need that time to work on my mental health or else I won't be an effective advocate for, for my clients. And I think in some past work experiences I've been in, there's a lot of guilt associated with that. Like, Oh, don't you want to help the cause? Don't you want to believe in this? Can't you just take on this one other thing, this one other case, this one other thing. And so I think going back to when I originally talked about advocating for yourself, you need to also advocate for yourself in those spaces too, to make sure that um, you are taking care of yourself and being the best advocate that you can be. So I guess just some pieces of advice that I've lessons that I've learned over the years. Yeah, that's good to know. Are are there obviously through your website you're trying to encourage Latinas to think about law school to apply to law school and get into this profession, right? Are there Latinas that you'd say, "Hey, look, I don't think this is for you. I think you should go in a different direction." Are there are there red flags that concern you? I mean, I think if if you're not really intentional about either practicing law or like doing something concrete in your career with a JD, you shouldn't go into the profession. And because it's a huge financial investment, first of all, it's a huge emotional, mental investment as well. Um, just the way that our legal education set up, right? Your first year of law school, you're introduced to the curve, <laughs> you're taking classes with your section. And so it can be really competitive, right? And for me, I know that that weighed heavily on my my mental health because that just wasn't really my personality. And so I had to contend with that. I also had, you know, a lot of people telling me, and I don't think it was like bad intentions or anything, but a lot of people saying, you know, this is the recipe for success. This is, you must, you know, want to do OCI. You must want to be on a journal. You have to do this, this, and this. And like, that's how you're going to be successful. And for me, I kind of had my own idea of what things I wanted to do and how I defined success. And so it was really hard because I think there's a big group think mentality in law school. And so, again, like I say, it's a 
big mental investment as well. And so if you're just going to law school to go to law school or because it seems like a good next step, I would caution you to take a step back and think about what are the reasons why you really, why does it you really want to go to law school? Like I know for me, for example, my dad, right? Immigrant from Peru. For him, there was only three like legitimate career paths. One was engineer, one was lawyer, and one was being a doctor. And thankfully, I happen to love the practice of law. And so like I went into that. But I think that that is like a very immigrant mentality. Like this is what I have to do. And this is how success is defined. And if I hadn't actually felt so passionately about the law, I think it would have been really awful going through the law school process and even now in practice. So that would be my advice. If if people want to do immigration law, what does what does the reality of an immigration law job look like? How much money are you going to make? Where what kind of school do you have to go to to get that job? I mean, I know that there's a range, but I think a lot of our LSAT students have misconceptions of what a career in immigration law actually looks like. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. So there's lots of different ways to practice immigration law. Um, You could work for the government. You could, for example, be an asylum officer and adjudicate um, asylum cases in a non-adversarial setting. I've had um, several alums go on to do that. You could clerk for an immigration judge as well. And so you would have a hand in drafting some of the decisions that come down from our immigration courts. You could work in a firm setting um, and there's different ranges, like many fields, um, small, like solo practitioners, all the way up to medium-sized firms. And then there's some bigger immigration firms like Maggio Qatar, for example. Um, you could work in a nonprofit, which is, again, what I did when I was at Casa. So maybe, let's, can we maybe take those one at a time and just talk about like how you get those jobs and how competitive it is and that, that sort of thing? I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of my students, the most naive ones, are like, I'm going to work in an immigration nonprofit. What's that actually look like? So it's going to very much like differ by nonprofit. I'm even thinking in the D.C. area, right? There's sort of different models how, um, how these attorneys practice immigration law on a day-to-day basis. But a lot of times nonprofits will like have a focus area even within immigration law. So for example, there's an immigration nonprofit that I interned at in law school called Kids in Need of Defense. And so they only work on juvenile cases, typically for something called special immigrant juvenile status or for asylum cases. Um, There's Care Coalition. They only worked on detained cases. There's um, IUDA, which typically works on more like affirmative cases, so cases with USCIS and not like before the immigration court. So even within immigration, right, there's so many like different niche areas. And one thing that nonprofits will tend to do is sort of narrow the scope of the types of cases that they work on. So that's one thing. How do you get those jobs? Where do you have to go to law school? How well do you have to do in law school? So I will say where you go to law school and how well you have go to law or how well you do in law school is not as important as perhaps in like a big law context. I mean, obviously you should always want to do well and, you know, um, go to a school that's setting you up for a, a good legal profession. But I will say experience in my, in my experience has mattered more than any of the other part. The fact that I was on journal has not once come up in an interview for public interest, but you know, the fact that I intern at certain places that I 
help to create this alternative spring break to Tucson, those are the things that matter to interviewers in the public interest context. And so I think demonstrated passion on your resume, that's really what's going to make you stick out um, as a strong candidate for those fields. How much money are you going to make in those jobs? Like everything in law, it depends. Um, But it does depend. It depends on like geographically where you are in the United States. It depends on your previous experience as well. That can make a difference. And then as far as nonprofit, obviously they're going to be on the lower end. But um, for example, I was in a union at Casa. And so like that had a influence on the the salary that I made a year. Um, So that's one thing. If you're going to a small mid-sized firm, you might make a couple tens of thousands of dollars more than you would in a nonprofit setting. So it's going to depend geographically where you are. It's going to depend on like what type of practice you do as well. Do you worry about the debt loads of students who are trying to pursue this path? Definitely. Um, I mean, I myself am a quarter of a million dollars in debt. So that's not something I take lightly. Um, I am banking on public interest loan repayment, but as we know from the statistics that have come out in the first couple of years, right, a very small chunk of individuals have actually been successful in that program. And so that worries me. That worries me for myself, for my students as well. Um, I think. Are that, you going to be able to get yours repaid? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Why is it that the that the public interest loan repayment program is not working? Why? 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 What's? What are the pitfalls? Why are people not actually getting their loans discharged? How are you personally going to be able to get your loans discharged if that's your plan? So I think one of the reasons why that program isn't working is because there's a lot of hiding the ball on things. And so like I've heard from my students, for example, one of my students just transferred from one nonprofit to another nonprofit and they try because of the date by which she left, they tried to not credit her for a month of working at a nonprofit. And so she actually caught it like went and told them like, no, you need to count me for this month and like argue with them until they did that. And so I think it's like sort of shady things like that. And then, um, like the requirements, right. We're filling out the paperwork and all that stuff. Like I, I was reading in this last class of people that tried to do it, that there was like clerical errors and things like that. And that was like the cited reason by the government for why they weren't able to discharge the loans. But I think that that's going to be part of, part of a larger national conversation because I mean, personally from a, my personal opinion is that we as a, a group of individuals that have these, these crippling student loans aren't doing things that are healthy indicators of an economy, i.e. buying homes, starting families, et cetera, because a lot of those decisions are now being informed by our crippling debt. And so I think we're going to see the ramifications of that and we're going to have to do something about the student loan debt. And so my hope is I have six more years to go. So my hope is by then that'll be a conversation we have had. If not, I joke, but not so jokingly have said that I would love to be part of a class action lawsuit (laughs) against the government regarding that. And I don't know if it would get that extreme, but I do definitely think that we're going to see the, the economic effects of that very soon. So we, sorry, it just kind of gives me pause. I mean, we, we worry on the show a lot. We, we're, we're all in favor of diversity, but we, you know, we had Professor uh, Ben Barton from the University of Tennessee on the show recently, and 
he was talking about how blacks and Latinos um, end up with higher indebtedness after law school. And that's obviously something that we should be worried about, right? Yes, definitely. And that's why that goes back to initially what I said, right, is that you should be advocating for yourself at the get-go, which because of being first-gen, whatever, I think a lot of, at least that was in my experience, that wasn't something I was familiar with or even comfortable doing. And then along those lines, I think that I also could have been better about applying for scholarships throughout law school. And there is money out there. And I just didn't do, I was just so stuck in the like law school bubble, I guess, that I just didn't do what I needed to do to apply for those things. And so Hermanas in the Law, actually, we are constantly working on compiling a scholarship list, um, which is available via the Instagram. We actually have one woman who... Christina Gill, who works on the list, and she personally has applied to all of those scholarships that are listed. Um, So that's like over 100 scholarships. And so that's something that we encourage the listeners to do as well. The other thing, right, that many people of color, certain many of the Latinas that follow Hermanas in the Law consider doing is then working, going part time and then working as well um, to sort of to decrease the amount of debt that they're taking on. And so this is a conversation that we're constantly having on the Manas of Law as well. Like individuals realize what it means to take on this amount of debt. And so that was a decision I made for myself personally. But I recognize that that's not the decision that everyone wants to make or the decision that's best for them. And so I think that that's something that very much these Latinas are thinking about. And they're thinking about how they're going to make their legal education affordable to them. I mean, it's literally not possible to pay off a quarter of a million dollars of debt if you're making $50,000 a year. Correct. That's why I'm I'm basing it on public interest loan repayment, but I do recognize the issues with that program as well. Well, one thing you you talk about is you talk about encouraging people to apply for scholarships. My concern about that is that aren't a lot of these scholarships only a few thousand dollars, or is this? Am I? Are we talking about different things? I've seen a range. Um, I know. I think maybe LSAC right now has like a $20,000 scholarship. So I myself was the beneficiary of a $10,000 scholarship from the Hispanic Bar Association of DC. So there are certainly ones that I've seen that range from like $500, but several that range to like tens of thousands of dollars as well. Okay. Well, so wait, sorry, just, just to clarify. So when you say a $10,000 scholarship, that's, that's the total, right? So if, if you're looking at three years of law school, it's not like they're giving you $10,000 each year. That's just, that's the 10 grand. Here you go. Correct. Like, I mean, the tuition at GW is $31,000 a semester. Is it even possible to finance your law school education with these other scholarships? I, I, I My impression was always that it really is just these, the tuition discounts that students are going to get you or that schools are going to give you when you're admitted. Is it, is it possible? I mean, if you're saying that there is a $20,000 scholarship from LSAC. I guess that's nice, but that's still not even one semester of law school. And so again, I mean, I think that that those scholarships offset it. And like I said, I know that a lot of Latinas are, this is what they're doing to be able to afford their, their law school education. But right, we should be having a larger discussion as well as why does legal education even cost as much to begin with? And there's definitely a lot of financial, well, a lot of barriers of entry, period, for people of color, especially Latinas, into law school. But one is 
financial, not just even tuition, right? Another is financial, like affording LSAT tutoring services, affording application fees, affording seat deposits and things like that. And so, I mean, that's something else that I've advocated for as well as looking at why does that legal education as a whole cost as much as it does. Yeah. Why does it? Couldn't GW just like cut their tuition in half? You know, I don't work in, uh, I, I don't know. I can't say. <laughs> You're not in the budget office. <laughs> uh, okay. Ben, any other follow-ups on the, on that issue? Maybe we can no, just no, switch just, to something lighter. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out how, you know, to encourage diversity on the one hand, but also um, make sure that you're not, you know, inviting someone into a situation that's going to end up hurting them financially and quite significantly so for the rest of their life, potentially, especially if loan payment doesn't work out or, um, you know, a whole host of other problems, not passing the bar. And I'm just, uh, you know, it's tough. It's a tough challenge. That's all. Yeah. You, you mentioned the curve. I mean, people coming into George Dub into GW, like the people who are paying full price at GW, they probably have a 160 LSAT score. They probably have a 3.4 undergraduate GPA. That's the, the 25th percentile at, uh, at GW. How do those, you know, what happens when those people encounter the curve in their one L classes? I mean, I would say, I was a solid student. Was I top of my class? <laughs> Absolutely not. And maybe, and that's also something I think if I had to reflect on my experience, there are resources, at least there were in my law school, right? The writing center, um, you know, accessibility of professors, things like that, that I personally didn't take advantage of on an academic standpoint. Cause I think I was just very intimidated or overwhelmed or didn't really like understand that that was like a thing I could do. <laughs> And so I think that in those situations, right, people should just access the, the resources that are, are available to them, but obviously recognizing that I went to a higher rank law school, and so I actually did have those resources. Um, I know that I've heard from other Latinas on, the, on Hermanas in the Law that they feel like sometimes my platform is more helpful than even the career centers at their own law schools. And because I think of costs and maybe like not having ideal scores, it is a problem, right? Where people of color are, you know, go to maybe these lower ranked schools, some of them that have like predatory tendencies as well. And they aren't getting, they don't have the access to the resources that they need. Certainly with the shock to the system, with being great on the curve and what legal education entails and then you know, outside of that, like career center, finding them meaningful placements, finding them opportunities job wise. What do, what do most people struggle with in law school? This is actually a question from, uh, Brenda on our Facebook group. She's, you mentioned some of the resources. So Brenda says, what are some resources that can help students on campus that people don't use enough and don't know about? Uh, and then also what do most people struggle with in law school? When you see somebody who's a 1L who's like really hurting, what are, what are they usually struggling with? Well, I actually don't interact with 1Ls too much. My students are 2Ls and 3Ls. But I will say the ones that have come to talk to me, because um, some do reach out, right? They want to do inter- informational interviews or whatever. I think just the balancing of everything, um, because 
you know, law school is like very all consuming, especially if it feels that way your first year of law school. And so, um, you know, a lot of them, especially if they're interested in public interest or immigration, they want to know how to volunteer and do things um, that remind them of why they came to law school in the first place, but they're like having a hard time, you know, balancing that with the workload. And then now they're in the, the phase, right, where they're applying for their internships. Um, and so I think that that's something I see individuals struggle with. So I offer them, I typically offer them volunteer, like not through the clinic, but ones that I know in the DC area that are maybe more low commitment. So they can still, for example, I uh, worked at a detention hotline for a local nonprofit when I was a 1L and it was like a two hour shift that I did every week. And even those two hours was like good to remind me of like, okay, yeah, you are passionate about immigration issues this is like why you want to do what you want to do. And that sort of <laughs> propelled me then to like focus on my, my schoolwork and do the things that I needed to do to, to get through my one all year. Um, so I think that, and then I think what I mentioned earlier, which is like the group think, right? Like a lot of them are struggling with making the decisions about what it is that they want to do this summer. And then what it is that they want to do next year and like what kinds of things they should be doing, um, especially if they want to go into a career in immigration law as well. This is a, uh, a GW focused question. Uh, Jan said, I would be interested in what she thinks GW has to offer in the public international law and national security areas in comparison to T14 schools. I'm, uh, you may or may not know about those programs at GW. So those weren't my focuses. Um, I do, however, know that a, like I said, we're in D.C., so we have a lot of access to those entities, the, um, the Organization of American States, the um, World Bank are both down the street from GW. So just, first of all, location. And because of that, we have accessibility to folks that work at those entities as well that are either adjunct professors or they're speakers um, or actually they're just part of the faculty um, so the accessibility, I think, of, of in individuals who are experts in those fields is something that we have maybe above and beyond some of the, the other schools as well. Um, I will also say one incredible resource who actually also happens to be a Latina lawyer is Dean Rosa Celorio, who's the dean for the International and Comparative Law Program. And speaking of accessibility, she is lovely. She is always willing to chat about the program. She's very passionate about it, actually. She comes from a background at the OAS. And so I would suggest if you have specific questions about that program to reach out to her because she's more than happy to answer any questions. couple questions here about how you personally chose law school. Uh, Gabriella wanted to know, whether the percentage of people of color was a factor for you when deciding which law school to choose, uh, why or why not? It wasn't because honestly, I just don't think I was just maybe, you know, in my activism and, you know, my passion and stuff, it wasn't something and I certainly didn't know the numbers in the legal profession. It wasn't something as much on my radar yet. I will say it was when I was in law school and when I started, you know, actually studying these things that these issues sort of came to light for me. And I think that that's very different from a lot of the folks who are applying to law school now. I always say all these people are our future, right? Because they're a lot more woke, I think, than I was going into law school. Um, but... 
again, if I had to go back and do it again, yeah, I would, I think I would just inquire more, not even about like numbers, but just like the support systems offered for students of color and for first gen students. Um, and that wasn't something I definitely, I, I didn't inquire as to that when I was going through the law school process. So Becky asks, um, did how much did your goals, I guess, career goals, how much did your career goals influence your choice of school? Uh, and, or did those goals develop and change as you moved through law school? I went to law school wanting to practice immigration law. Um, I am the daughter of two immigrants. I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, where immigration is very contentious. I, um, worked for Congressman Raul Grijalva after SB 1070, Arizona's, um, show me your papers, please law came out. And so it was very much on my radar that I wanted to practice immigration law. Um, I was already going to school in DC. I actually went to GW for undergrad as well. And so I saw, right, that, um, DC, you know, had large immigrant populations, specifically from Central America and from Africa. I saw that we have a lot of nonprofits, we have the government, we have firms, a lot of different practice areas for immigration law. And so I wanted to stay in DC, certainly. And then I wanted a school, you know, as well that would support me in my goals. And actually, a big draw for me to, to GW was the reputation of our immigration clinic. And I went into law school and telling myself that I was going to be a student attorney in the immigration clinic. And I think that here's my plug for clinical education, but I think that it's the most hands-on experience that I got, even considering all my internships. A lot of law school is very esoteric, right? Um, you're, you're fleshing out why it is that we have certain laws. And I think that there's definitely a, pl- a time and a place for that academic um, rigor, but being as like practice oriented as I am, as client oriented as I am for me, clinic taught me the skills that I actually needed to interact with clients to interact with the local entities, which is like USCIS and the, and um, the immigration court, like how, how do the immigration judges like their filings, for example, little things like that, that sound silly, but actually make such a difference that you don't learn in the law school or in the law school classroom setting necessarily, I think definitely helped me with my career trajectory. So yes, I thought about it coming into law school. Again, I recognize that not everyone comes into law school knowing exactly what area of the law that they want to practice. I'm, I think a little weird and that I went into it. And then I, with the internships and the classes that I took, I continued to really love the area of the law and continued to stick with it. And then I think clinic for me really solidified that this is like what I should be doing. Ben, do you have any uh, final questions for Professor Vera? No, this is uh, this is interesting. I mean, I I hope you are successful launching your website and making your nonprofit and um, moving forward with your goals. I mean, this is uh, I'm in DC as well, so close by. How do people uh, how do people follow you? You can you can plug absolutely everything you want: uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Sure. So um, on Instagram, we're just hermanas in the law, all one word. Um, and then we have a private Facebook group as well. But you can just search for hermanas in the law, send the request, um, and join that way. And then, like I said, we also have a LinkedIn group as well, um, where I post job opportunities, things like that, that uh, either individuals send to me or I just come across. 
um, also named Admiral in the Law. And then um, we have <laughs> we have a playlist on Spotify called our uh, Hermanas in the Law Hype Playlist. And so I asked um, our followers to send us song recommendations for songs that like they listen to on the way to law school or like on the way to court that sort of gets them hyped up. Um, so we compiled those into a playlist and I've had several individuals tell me that actually before they go to court or something, they'll play it and it makes them feel better. Like they, the community is with them. So you can find that as well. Awesome. Um, Professor Paulina Vera is uh, supervising the GW law immigration clinic. Thank you very much, Paulina, for coming on the show. It was really nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Have a good one. All right. I want to say thanks again for uh, to Paulina for coming on the show. I hope all the listeners found that um, instructive, entertaining, whatever. You want to wrap it up there, Ben, or you got anything else you want to talk about? No, no, I'm good. Okay. You can join the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. Uh, we are at Thinking LSAT on Instagram and Twitter. I personally use Twitter. I'm at in Fox if you want to find me on Twitter. Uh, ben, I think you use Instagram more often, I right? do, yeah. That's at Innovator Ben if you want to uh, follow Ben on Instagram. You can visit strategyprep.com and foxlsat.com if you want to learn about our individual services. Ben's got uh, live classes in DC. I've got live classes in LA and San Francisco. We also offer all sorts of one on one options. The online thing that we do is lsatdemon.com. We already talked about that earlier, so I don't think we need to talk about that anymore. You can listen to the show all sorts of ways. If you don't already know, you can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, thinkinglsat.com. If you enjoy the show, please uh, you know, try to get your friends hooked on it. Just uh just grab their phone and go on I Apple Podcasts and subscribe for them so that they can uh get the Thinking LSAT podcast automatically delivered to their phone. Again, yeah, leave us a review on iTunes if you if you're so inclined. Um it does us uh it really is a big favor if you can just go in and uh, write a few words about your experience with the show. Yeah. That was episode 229 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. Yeah.